The Hobbit, Chapter 12, Inside Information, Part 1. For a long time the dwarves stood in the dark before the door and debated, until at last Thorne spoke. Now is the time for our esteemed Mr. Baggins, who has proved himself a good companion on our long road, and a hobbit full of courage and resource far exceeding his size, and if I may say so, possessed of good luck far exceeding the usual allowance, now is the time for him to perform the service for which he was included in our company. Now is the time for him to earn his reward. You are familiar with Thorin's style on important occasions, so I will not give you any more of it, though he went on a good deal longer than this. It certainly was an important occasion, but Bilbo felt impatient. By now he was quite familiar with Thorin too, and he knew what he was driving at. If you mean you think it is my job to go into the secret passage first, O Thorin, Thrain's son, Oakenshield, may your beard grow ever longer, he said crossly. Say so at once and have done. I might refuse. I have got you out of two messes already, which were hardly in the original bargain, so that I am, I think, already owed some reward. But third time pays for all, as my father used to say, and somehow I don't think I shall refuse. Perhaps I have begun to trust my luck more than I used to in the old days. He meant last spring, before he left his own house, but it seemed centuries ago. But anyway, I think I will go and have a peep at once and get it over. Now, who's coming with me? He did not expect a chorus of volunteers, so he was not disappointed. Feely and Keeley looked uncomfortable and stood on one leg, but the others made no pretense of offering, except old Balin, the lookout man, who was rather fond of the hobbit. He said he would come inside at least, and perhaps a bit of the way too, ready to call for help if necessary. The most that can be said for the dwarves is this. They intended to pay Bilbo really handsomely for his services. They had brought him to do a nasty job for them, and they did not bind the poor little fellow doing it if he would, but they would all have done their best to get him out of trouble if he got into it, as they did in the case of the trolls at the beginning of their adventures, before they had any particular reasons for being grateful to him. There it is. Dwarves are not heroes, but calculating folk with a great idea of the value of money. Some are tricky and treacherous, and pretty bad lots. Some are not, but are decent enough people like Thorne and company, if you don't expect too much. The stars were coming out behind him in a pale sky barred with black when the hobbit crept through the enchanted door and stole into the mountain. It was far easier going than he expected. This was no goblin entrance, or rough wood elves cave, it was a passage made by dwarves at the height of their wealth and skill, straight as a ruler, smooth-floored and smooth-sided, going with a gentle, gentle, never-varying slope direct to some distant end in the blackness below. After a while, Balin bade Bilbo good luck and stopped where he could still see the faint outline of the door, and by a trick of the echoes of the tunnel, hear the rustle of the whispering voices of the others just outside. Then the hobbit slipped on his ring, and warned by the echoes to take more than hobbits care to make no sound, he crept noiselessly down, down, 
down into the dark. He was trembling with fear, but his little face was set and grim. Already he was a very different hobbit from the one that had run out without a pocket handkerchief from Bag End long ago. He had not had a pocket handkerchief for ages. He loosened his dagger in its sheath, tightened his belt, and went on. Now you are in for it at last, Bilbo Baggins, he said to himself. You went and put your foot right in it that night at the party, and now you have got to pull it out and pay for it. Dear me, what a fool I was, and am, said the least tookish part of him. I have absolutely no use for dragon-guarded treasures, and the whole lot could stay here forever, if only I could wake up and find this beastly tunnel was my own front hall at home. He did not wake up, of course, but went still on and on, till all sign of the door behind had faded away. He was altogether alone. Soon he thought it was beginning to feel warm. Is that a kind of glow I seem to see coming right ahead down there? He thought. It was, and he went forward. It grew and grew, till there was no doubt about it. It was a red light steadily getting redder and redder. Also, it was now undoubtedly hot in the tunnel. Wisps of vapor floated up and passed him, and he began to sweat. A sound, too, began to throb in his ears, a sort of bubbling like the noise of a large pot galloping on the fire, mixed with a rumble as of a gigantic tomcat purring. This grew to the unmistakable gurgling noise of some vast animal snoring in its sleep down there in the red glow in front of him. It was at this point that Bilbo stopped. Going on from there was the bravest thing he ever did. The tremendous things that happened afterwards were as nothing compared to it. He fought the real battle in the tunnel alone before he ever saw the vast danger that lay in wait. At any rate, after a short halt, go on he did, and you can picture him coming to the end of the tunnel, an opening of much the same size and shape as the door above. Though it peeps the hobbit's, through it peeps the hobbit's little head, before him lies the great bottommost cellar, or dungeon hall, of the ancient dwarves right at the mountain's root. It is almost dark, so that its vastness can only be dimly guessed, but rising from the near side of the rocky floor, there is a great glow, the glow of smog. There he lay, a vast red golden dragon, fast asleep. A thrumming came from his jaws and nostrils, and wisps of smoke, but his fires were low in slumber. Beneath him, under all his limbs, and his huge coiled tail, and about him on all sides stretching away across the unseen floors, lay countless piles of precious things, gold wrought and unwrought, gems and jewels and silver red stained in the ruddy light. Smog lay with wings folded like an immeasurable bat, turned partly on one side so that the hobbit could see his underparts and his long pale belly crusted with gems and fragments of gold from his long lying on his costly bed. Behind him, where the walls were nearest, could dimly be seen coats of mail, helms and axes, swords and spears hanging, and there in rows stood great jars and vessels filled with a wealth 
that could not be guessed. To say that Bilbo's breath was taken away is no description at all. There are no words left to express his staggerment, since men changed the language that they learned of elves in the days when the, all the world was wonderful. Bilbo had heard tell and sing of gra dragon hordes before, but the splendor, the lust, the glory of such treasure had never yet come home to him. His heart was filled and pierced with enchantment and with the desire of dwarves, and he gazed motionless, almost forgetting the frightful guardian, as the gold beyond price and count. He gazed for what seemed an age before, dawn, drawn almost against his will, he stole from the shadow of the doorway, across the floor, to the nearest edge of the mounds of treasure. Above him, the sleeping dragon lay, a dire menace even in his sleep. He grasped a great two-handled cup, as heavy as he could carry, and cast one fearful eye upwards. Smaug stirred a wing, opened a claw. The rumble of his snoring changed its note. Then Bilbo fled, but the dragon did not wake, not yet, but shifted into other dreams of greed and violence, lying there in his stolen hall, while the little hobbit toiled back up the long tunnel. His heart was beating and a more fevered shaking when his was in his legs than when he was going down, but still he clutched the cup, and his chief thought was, I've done it. This will show them, more like a grocer than a burglar indeed. Well, we'll hear no more of that. Nor did he. Balin was overjoyed to see the hobbit again, and as delighted as he was surprised, he picked Bilbo up and carried him out into the open air. It was midnight, and clouds had covered the stars, but Bilbo lay with his eyes shut, gasping and taking pleasure in the feel of the fresh air again, and hardly noticing the excitement of the dwarves, or how they praised him and patted him on the back, and put themselves and all their families for generations to come at his service. The dwarves were still passing the cup from hand to hand and talking delightedly of the recovery of their treasure, when suddenly a vast rumbling woke in the mountain underneath, as if it was an old volcano that had made up its mind to start eruptions once again. The door behind them was pulled nearly to and blocked from closing with a stone, but up the long tunnel came the dreadful echoes from far, be from far down in the depths of a bellowing and a trampling that made the ground beneath them tremble. Then the dwarves forgot their joy in their confident boasts of a moment before and cowered down in fright. Smaug was still to be reckoned with. It does not do to leave a dragon out of your calculations if you live near him. Dragons may not have much real use for all their wealth, but they know it to an ounce as a rule, especially after long possession, and Smaug was no exception. He had passed from an uneasy dream in which a warrior, altogether insignificant in size, but provided with a bitter sword and great courage, figured most unpleasantly, to a doze, and from a doze to wide waking. There was a breath of strange air in his cave. Could there be a drought from that little hole? He had never felt quite happy about it, though it was so small, and now he glared at it in suspicion and wondered why he had never blocked it up. Of late he had half fancied he had caught the dim echoes of a knocking sound from far above that came down through it to his lair. 
he stirred and stretched forth his neck to sniff. Then he missed the cup. Thieves, fire, murder, such a thing had not happened since first he came to the mountain. His rage passes description, the sort of rage that is only seen when rich folk that have more than they can enjoy suddenly lose something that they have long had but have never before used or wanted. His fire belched forth, the hall smoked, he shook the mountain roots, he thrust his head in vain at the little hole, and then coiling his length together, roaring like thunder underground, he sped from his deep lair through its great door out into the huge passages of the mountain palace and up towards the front gate. To hunt the whole mountain till he had caught the thief and had torn and trampled him was his one thought. He issued from the gate. The waters rose in fierce whistling steam and up he soared, blazing into the air and settled on the mountain top in a spout of green and scarlet flame. The dwarves heard the awful rumor of his flight and they crouched against the walls of the grassy terrace, cringing under boulders, hoping somehow to escape the frightful eyes of the hunting dragon. There they would have all been killed if it had not been for Bilbo once again. Quick, quick, he gasped. The door, the tunnel, it's no good here. Roused by these words, they were just about to creep inside the tunnel when Biffer gave a cry. My cousins, Bomber and Boffer, we have forgotten them. They are down in the valley. They will be slain, and all our ponies too, and all our stores lost, moaned the others. We can do nothing. Nonsense, said Thorin, recovering his dignity. We cannot leave them. Get inside, Mr. Baggins and ba Balin, and you two, Feely and Keeley. The dragon shan't have all of us. Now you others, where are the ropes? Be quick. Those were, perhaps the, those were perhaps the worst moments they had been through yet. The horrible sounds of Smaug's anger were echoing in the stony hollows far above. At any moment, he might come blazing down or fly whirling round and find them there near the perilous cliff's edge, hauling madly on the ropes. Up came Boffer, and still all was safe. Up came Bomber, puffing and blowing while the ropes creaked, and still all was safe. Up came some tools and bundles of stores, and then danger was upon them. A whirring noise was heard. A red light touched the points of standing rocks. The dragon came. They had barely time to fly back to the tunnel, pulling and dragging in their bundles, when Smaug came hurtling from the north, licking the mountainsides with flame, beating his great wings with a noise like a roaring wind. His hot breath shriveled the grass before the door and drove in through the crack they had left and scorched them as they lay hid. Flickering fires leaped up, black rock shadows danced, then darkness fell as he passed again. The ponies screamed with terror, burst their ropes, and galloped widely off. The dragon swooped and turned to pursue them and was gone. That'll be the end of our poor beasts, said Thorin. Nothing can escape Smaug once he sees it. Here we are, and here we shall have to stay, unless anyone fancies tramp, tramping the long open miles back to the river with Smaug on the watch. It was not a pleasant thought. They crept further down the tunnel, and there they lay and shivered, though it was warm and stuffy until dawn came pale through the crack of the door.
Every now and again through the night, they could hear the roar of the flying dragon grow and then pass and fade as he hunted round and round the mountainsides. He guessed from the ponies and from the traces of the camps he had discovered that men had come up from the river and the lake and had scaled the mountainside from the valley where the ponies had been standing. But the door withstood his searching eye and, little, and the little high-walled bay had kept out the fiercest flames. Long had he hunted in vain till the dawn chilled his wrath and he went back to his golden couch to sleep and to gather new strength. He would not forget or forgive the theft, not if a thousand years turned him to smoldering stone, but he could afford to wait. Slow and silent, he crept back to his lair and half closed his eyes. When morning came, the terror of the dwarves grew less. They realized that dangers of this kind were inevitable in dealing with such a guardian and that it was no good giving up their quest yet. Nor could they get away just now, as Thorin had pointed out. Their ponies were lost or killed, and they would have, and they would have to wait some time before Smaug relaxed his watch sufficiently for them to dare the long way on foot. Luckily, they had saved enough of their stores to last them still for some time. They debated long on what was to be done, but they could think of no way of getting rid of Smaug, which had always been a weak point in their plans, as Bilbo felt inclined to point out. Then, as is the nature of folk that are thoroughly perplexed, they began to grumble at the hobbit, blaming him for what had at first so pleased them, for bringing away a cup and stirring up Smaug's wrath so soon. "'What else do you suppose a burglar is to do?' asked Bilbo angrily. "'I was not engaged to kill dragons.' That is warrior's work, but to steal treasure. I made the best beginning I could. Did you expect me to trot back with the whole horde of thrower on my back? If there is any grumbling to be done, I think I might have a say. You ought to have brought five hundred burglars, not one. I am sure it reflects great credit on your grandfather, but you cannot pretend that you ever made the vast extent of his wealth clear to me. I should want hundreds of years to bring it all up if I was fifty times as big and Smaug as tame as a rabbit. After that, of course, the dwarves begged his pardon. What then do you propose we should do, Mr. Baggins? asked Thorne politely. The end of part one.